0: All right, please have a seat, everybody. As you know, church, one thing that my family forgot to do while in the midst of the hustle and the bustle is we forgot to light the Advent candle. And Man, what an amazing picture in my mind about what Christmas season is like. You know, like I think in the midst of Christmas, there can be so many things, so many to-dos, so many um, things in the mental checklist, so many things that, you know, we feel like we need to get done and have to happen that we forget to light a candle and reflect. We forget to take a pause and take a break and to consider. And so... My prayer for you as we enter into this Advent season is that that you don't do what your pastor does. (laughs) That you take the time in the midst of, I know, Christmas is crazy, right? There's like so many things going on. It's such a busy time. There's so many things to get done. But in the midst of that, I pray that you don't forget to light a candle you don't forget to take time to remember why it is that we're doing what we're doing why it is that we're putting everything up in tinsel and we have lights and all of this other stuff that we are anticipating the birth of a king who has come in a manger and that entrance into the world changes absolutely everything i pray that we can enter deeply into the that reality and that truth this christmas season and um Hopefully, we're going to continue to do that through our, through our sermon series in Isaiah. We're continuing our sermon series in Isaiah. We have two more passages in this sermon series, and um, it's going to take us right into the Advent season. It's going to take us right into the heart of anticipation for this coming um, king, for uh, Jesus to come. And last week, what we looked at was, I think, an amazing passage. It was an iconic passage in the book of Isaiah. is Isaiah chapter 53. And it's this wonderful passage that prophesied about the coming of Christ. It prophesied about the work of Christ 700 years before the birth of Christ. I mean, that's an amazing thing. And I would... Um, Uh, encourage you to take a look at that passage if you have the time, to take a look at the previous sermons about that passage, because it's just something so amazing that 700 years before the birth of Christ, that there could be such accuracy and such um, hope in predicting um, the coming of our Savior King. And really, that passage that we looked at last week, it gave us this kind of outline of the gospel. And with our passage today, um, hopefully what we'll do is we'll fill that outline of the gospel a little bit more. Now, first, to talk about the gospel, we should know what the word gospel means. And so that word gospel, it is a Greek word, and it's a word that literally means good news. Gospel is a word that means good news. And you know, church, in essence, news is a detailing about what has already been done, Right? News is a detailing about what has already been done. So when we watch the news, when you watch the news or you read about the news, you are watching or reading about a report of something that has already happened, right? You are reading about something that has already happened and is being reported to you. And church, that is the gospel. The gospel is not about what you have to do. It's not about what you need to make happen. No, no. The gospel is good news. The gospel is about something that has already been done. The gospel is about something that has already happened for you. And that is why it is good news. And this good news is that Jesus... The Son of God, he took on human flesh, and he stepped into human history. And in this great act of sacrificial love, he paid the price you could not pay. He won the battle you could not win, and he attained from God what you could never attain. On the cross, Jesus paid the price of our sins through his death. He defeated the enemies of sin and death and was raised again to life. And through his sacrifice, he brought us the gift of eternal life and obtained for us a status from God as his children. And church, is that not good news? Is that not gospel? And so today, our passage, I think, I hope, it will continue to fill out this outline of the gospel. We will be talking about number one, who is the gospel for? Number two, we'll look at what does the gospel promise, and finally, we'll talk about how do we drink from the waters of the gospel. So, who is the gospel for? What does it promise, and how do we drink about? Uh, how do we drink from it? And so, to get into the um, this word, we're going to look at it and we're going to read it through together. It's Isaiah chapter fifty-five, starting at verse one, and we're going to go all the way to verse seven, and it reads like this: Come. And come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do, do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is the word of the Lord. And now you know, in preparing this message today, I was just I was taken back to older times. And I remember this picture of when Jesse and I were younger. And when Jesse and I were younger, and when we were just kind of establishing ourselves, we were renting this um one-bedroom basement suite. Sorry, it's called a garden suite. That's super like, oh, a garden suite. But no, it was really like In the basement. So a one-bedroom garden suite in Kitsilano. We were paying about $900 a month for this. At the time, I was still studying. I was in seminary. And Jessie was just starting her career as a physiotherapist. And during that time, I remember that one of my favorite, favorite, favorite date nights was going to the Richmond Night Market. (laughs) Right? Back when the night market was uh, at Vulcan Way. You know what I'm talking about? Like the old school night market. And, you know, my favorite thing was, I especially like going to all these different food stalls because there are all these different choices. There are all of these different kinds of delicious foods to try. And my favorite time to wander around these food stalls was like 30 minutes before the market closed. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Right? You wander around 30 minutes before the market closed. Why? Because that is when people are trying to get rid of their food and get out. And so that is a time where you can get a really good deal. That is when people are willing to give you a really good bargain. I'll give you this for $5. No, $2. And they would think about it. You know what I mean? Like, and so it was a time when I didn't have a lot of money in my pocket where I felt so rich. Like I had so many options. You know, there are are even times where vendors would compete to sell me stuff. Like, I'll give it to you for cheaper. It was amazing. And the picture, and why I bring this up is, the picture that we have in the very beginning of this passage is a picture of a person in this busy busy marketplace. And there are all of these stalls. There's all of these options. There are all of these things that promise to delight and satisfy. And this person is shouting and calling to you from God's tent. And he's saying, come. Come and drink. Come and eat. And be satisfied in him. And if you listen carefully to this person that's talking in this passage, you'll hear that there is this urgency in his voice, right? Because in verse six, he calls you to come while God still may be found. Come while God still may be found. Come while God is near. The call in verse six is to come and to drink and to eat while you still can. But then in this passage, what we see is that this call to come, to come to the tent of the Lord, is for absolutely everybody in the marketplace. It is for people who can't afford to buy what they are longing for. It is for those people who say to themselves, if only I had that thing, then I would be happy." But it is also for the people who are able to get or who were able to get what they were longing for, what they were hoping would satisfy, but still have found themselves longing and empty for more. It is a call for the Anthony Bourdaines of the world who have seemingly tasted it all, but have still found themselves hungering and thirsting for more. The call is for everyone to come. Come, stop longing for, stop chasing after things that do not satisfy, but come to the tent of the Lord and finally be satisfied. And do you know, church, as I was reading that, those verses, I just started thinking, man, that is quite a claim, is it not? This claim that we can finally be satisfied. Right? Because sometimes it can feel like we are a people that, is, that are born with this insatiable dissatisfaction that we are a people that can't be satisfied. You know, my newborn is born with it. My daughter, Carissa, you know, her desire, she has this desire to hold all the things she's not allowed to, all of the sharp objects, all of the electrical appliances. And she cries and she wails as she reaches out to grab these things as if to say, I will only be happy if I can hold that thing. And then my four-year-old, she's a little older, and this Christmas, her desire is all about getting the right toy. She just wants this slime thing. She wants slime. That's all she wants. And it's almost like in her mind, if I get that thing, once I get that, then my life will be complete. Then I will finally be satisfied. Satisfied. And you know, it doesn't get away as we get older. I feel like sometimes it just gets more intense, right? As we get older, our desire often turns to once I get these good grades, once I'm finally popular, once I have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, then I will be satisfied. And then when we become adults, the desires just change, but the desires remain. And the desires are like, once I get some more square footage, once I have a little more security in my bank account once I'm able to go on vacation a little bit more, once I have a little bit more time to do the things that I want to do. So church, I think by the time we're adults, uh, we are already so well acquainted with dissatisfaction. And this is the thing. Our dissatisfaction, it can lead to such a multitude of problems, can it not? Our dissatisfaction can lead to such a multitude of sins. A desire for better grades can lead you to cheat on a test. A desire for more money can lead you to cheat on your taxes. A desire for more in a relationship can lead you to cheat on a spouse or a partner. A desire for deeper intimacy or a desire for acceptance and belonging can lead to unhealthy addictions like things like porn or likes and retweets. And so church, I truly believe that if we are not careful, our dissatisfaction can lead us right into a life full of anxiety and depression and envy and self-medication. And then it's funny, isn't it? It's funny because by the time we're older, by the time we're in the winter of our years, even though nothing we've longed for has ever fully satisfied us, we start longing to lose what we did attain. We start longing to keep our health. We want to hold on to it no matter what. We start longing to keep our friends who may be passing away. We start longing to keep our independence and our usefulness. And so, church, what I've seen is that as we get older, maybe because we have become so familiar with dissatisfaction and disappointment, maybe because we have chewed through all of these different desires, but we have still found ourselves hungering, There can be this growing cynicism that bubbles up inside of us. This growing doubt that says, maybe that's just the way life is. Maybe there is no true satisfaction. Maybe there is no real hope for peace after all. But the claim, the audacious claim in this passage is that everybody, every single one of us has access to this true satisfaction with God. That regardless of our situations, where we find ourselves, the the life stage or whatever it is, that we can all, each and every one of us, go to him and finally be filled. And so church, that is who the gospel is for. The gospel is for absolutely everybody. And then in the next few verses, we see what the gospel promises. That's the second thing we're talking about, right? And so starting at verse 3, it reads like this. Um, Our passage reads, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified And so church, right in verse 3, the passage is saying, when we incline our ear to the Lord, when we turn to God, his promise is to draw us into this everlasting covenant, this promise that he first promised King David long ago. And so let's unpack that passage a little bit. You know, King David, who's mentioned in these verses, King David, for all of his failings, he was honored in the Old Testament as Israel's ideal king. And so during King David's reign, God promised him in 2 Samuel that a Messiah or a Savior of the world would come directly from his family line. And this son of David, this Messiah, he would establish an even greater kingdom than David's kingdom. That this Messiah would establish an everlasting kingdom of deep peace and justice and joy. And at the centerpiece of this new kingdom, this new nation, this kingdom to come, at the centerpiece of this kingdom would be an everlasting covenant with God. Well, what's an everlasting covenant with God? Well, I would describe it like this. An everlasting covenant with God is a binding, unshakable relationship with the God of the universe. An everlasting covenant with God is a guarantee of God's sure and steadfast love for all of eternity. Right, And so, church, can I just say, if this indeed is what we were made for, If this indeed is what we are created for, to be a part of a nation that is centered around having an everlasting covenant, this deep, unshakable relationship with the Lord, if we were made to know God and be in relationship with him and experience his love forever, is there any wonder why nothing else on this planet will fully satisfy us? Right? Like if you were created to delight in life with God forever... There is no way getting a house with an extra bedroom is going to compete with that. Right? There is no way that getting into the university of your choice is going to satisfy if you were made to have an everlasting covenant relationship with the Lord. Right? And here's the thing. You know, one of the major themes in the gospel accounts, in the biblical text, is that Jesus is this Messiah. One of the major themes in the gospel accounts of the biblical text is Jesus is this great king. For example, like we read earlier about from the gospel of Matthew, it starts with this genealogy of Jesus and it traces his family line right to King David, that Jesus is quite literally a son of David. And we also see that Jesus is repeatedly called within the Gospels a son of David, again and again. And we also see him accepting and declaring his messianic role in all of these different ways. During his ministry, Jesus was a witness, just like verse 4 talks about. He went about declaring and announcing that God's kingdom was at hand. And what we also learn in the Gospels is that Jesus did not bring about his kingdom by power or force, or might, but that he brought about the kingdom through this great act of sacrificial love, that Jesus made a way for us to all be reconciled with God and to know him by dying for the sin and the consequences of our wild desires. And then God raised Christ up from the dead. God glorified Christ, just like it says in verse 5 of our text today. And in Ephesians, it describes this as God raised Jesus up and he seated Jesus at his right hand. And now, even now, Jesus is on the throne and he is drawing us into this new reality of his kingdom as we speak. And so church, part of what that means, because we may be wondering, what does this mean to be drawn into this new reality of Christ's kingdom? Well, part of what this means to be drawn into the new reality of Christ's kingdom is that we can drink from this deep covenantal relationship with God today. We can begin to taste this deep covenantal relationship with God today. I love how verse 1 of our passage tells us, to come to God and drink from his water and drink from his wine and drink from his milk. Those are the three things that it mentions, the three drinks in verse 1 that it mentions. There's water for us, there's wine for us, and there's milk for us. And I think that's awesome because it just points to how fulfilling a relationship with God is. Water is all about refreshment. Water is all about renewal when we are weary. When we are drained and parched, there is nothing better for us than a glass of water. And wine, it is about joy and delight. It is the drink of celebration and feast. And milk is about sustenance and nourishment. And so part of what this passage is inviting is to come and receive this invigorating, this joy-filled, this life-giving relationship with God. Receive this life-filled relationship with God today while you still can, while you still have time. And then do you see what this passage implies about this great invitation to come and drink? It implies that this tent is not a soup kitchen. That there is a cost involved. There is the language of payment, come and buy, right? And hundreds of years after this passage is written, we learn who pays so that we might drink. Because on the cross, it is Jesus who pays the price so that we might come and drink freely from this new life with God. And so, who is this gospel for? This gospel is for everyone. What does this gospel promise? It promises access to this kingdom that is centered around this deep, everlasting, life-giving relationship with God. And then the last thing that we're talking about today is how do we drink from it? How do we drink from this relationship? And church, I think that is such an important thing to talk about because sometimes our life can feel distant from this life-giving relationship with God, can't it? Right? Sometimes in the midst of it all, in the midst of the hustle and bustle, our lives can feel dry and parched, even if we do call Jesus our Lord and Savior. So what's going on? And in the midst of it, how do we drink deeply from the presence of God in our lives? Well, I think our last two verses points at how we can drink deeply from the presence of God. Starting at verse 6, it reads like this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know, church, that language of forsaking wicked ways, that language of um, turning away from unrighteous thoughts and turning back to this forgiving and compassionate God, that language is the language of repentance. You know, during Jesus' ministry, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And in saying that, it's almost like Jesus is saying, if you do not repent, I cannot give you access if you want to drink from God's love, if you want to drink from God's power and his presence, repentance is the straw. Repentance is one of the key ways that we could draw near to the presence of God and engage with his life within our lives. And now, you know, a lot of the times when it comes to repentance and when we think about repentance, we can think about repentance as this one-time thing, right? That we repent when we first become Christians or will we repent in the waters of baptism? But I love what the great reformer Martin Luther says about repentance. And Martin Luther says this. And I quote, he says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Do you see what Luther is saying here? Luther is saying that repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is a way of being repentance is a way of living. It's a way of life. And just let me tell you why we need to live a life of repentance or why I think we need to live our life of repentance anyways. It's because so often our lives can be about showing everybody else how competent we are. So often our lives can be about showing everybody else how able and how smart and how accomplished we are. From our resumes to our degrees to our Instagram feeds, we can be driven to build this glittering image of ourselves That we think will prove us worthy and will show us acceptable to others and to ourselves. And you know, one of the reasons many of us don't like to repent, one of the reasons I don't like to say sorry for anything, is because it could totally ruin that glittering image. It can smash your self sufficiency to pieces, it could dull your shine. It could point away from your good record. It could point away from your carefully crafted life and bring focus to all your cracks, to where you are weak, to where you are broken, and to where you are failing. Repentance can shine a light on all the ugly sides of who we are instead of showing the beautiful, glittering image side of who we are. But you know, church, repentance is also coming to the feet of God and saying, God, I need you despite the person that I have become, despite what I have accomplished with my two hands, deep down, I still thirst. Deep down, I'm still cracked and I'm still broken and I still need to drink from you in order to mend. I still need to drink from you in order to heal and in order to be made whole. You see, repentance is what brings us back into the loving arms of God. Repentance is what Opens us up for God to change us by the power of his spirit. Repentance is what leads us to depend on the presence of God more and more in our lives to guide us and lead us forward. And you know, repentance is also what reconnects us to the sufficiency of Christ. What I mean by that is, when we repent instead of clinging to your own record, instead of clinging to your own works, instead of clinging to your own things for worth and acceptance, it turns you back to look at Christ's record. It turns you back to look at what Christ did for you. Instead of looking to maintain your own glittering image, it turns you to look at Christ's loving countenance that sees everything that you are, every single thing, and still loves you and receives you and forgives you. And you know, church, living that life of repentance, there's such a deep security in that, isn't there? There's such a deep freedom in that. Because the more you repent, the more you realize you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to keep up your appearances to show that you're always right. You don't have to win every single argument anymore. You can be humble. You can be vulnerable. You can be truthful with yourself about who you are. Because you know that your identity is not tied up in how good you are or how good you look to others. But it is tied up in how good God is. In this good and gracious God. And how wonderful he is. And so church, I guess my prayer for us today is that we, this Advent season, can be a people of repentance. That we can get caught up in this forgiving grace of God that we can be swept up in it where the more we repent the more we encounter God's love and the more we encounter God's forgiveness and the more we encounter God's love and the more we encounter God's forgiveness the more we grow deeper in in humility and in joy and in character and the more we grow deeper in humility and in joy and in character the more we will know that we are not perfect and we are not self sufficient and we will be okay with that and find ourselves at the doorstep of repentance again. I pray that we can enter into that cycle of repentance because it's that cycle of repentance that takes us further up and further into this deep intimacy, this deep fellowship with God. It is this cycle of repentance that often opens us up to be filled with God's love and his grace and his faithfulness and somehow be satisfied In all situations. And church, that really is the way of the gospel, isn't it? That the way up is down. That you die to your pride and you die to yourself in order to find your true self. That in your humbling, that is where you find yourself lifted up. That is the way of the gospel. And that is the way of Christ. Who went to the cross but in the end received the crown. Who went to die but in the end brought us all into everlasting life with the father that is the way of the gospel that is the way of christ church let us dare to make that our way this advent season as well let's pray Um, heavenly lord and gracious father we thank you that um, in your word there is this hope that says that we can be filled in the midst of all of our Christmas longings of getting this or getting that or having like a fuller Christmas dinner or like with people at the table or whatever it is, that all of those longings, they can be satisfied. We thank you that through your word and through your son, you have brought that hope into our very lives, into our very living rooms, into our very neighborhoods. And Lord, we pray that we might be as bold and as audacious to hold on to that hope. Lord, in, the, in, the, in James, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. And sometimes, Lord, I think we do not ask because we do not want to repent. So, Lord, I just pray that we as a community this season can be a community that is willing to repent, that we can turn And find ourselves at your feet again, knowing that you are kind and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, ready to forgive, ready to change, ready to enter into fellowship with us, that we might turn to you so that you might change us, so that we might have your filling, so that we might walk with the presence of your spirit and know it instead of walk with the presence of your spirit and be blind to it. The world missed the coming of your king. So much of the world missed the coming of your king because you were born in a manger. Lord, we pray this Advent season, we do not miss your coming because our backs are turned from you and we are chasing after all of these things that do not satisfy. God, I pray that you bring us to your feet so that we might light a candle into delight in your coming. All of these things we pray in your name. Amen.